Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. You didn't go on that uh, camp out. You didn't want to pretend you were homeless? No? We have about uh, 60, some odd 60, 70 that uh, are up in Prescott. Pray for their safe return. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Wrapping up this teaching series today, next week, and we're talking about spiritual warfare. This has been our life. There's an app for that teaching series. And where have we been in this teaching series? We started off with the first three chapters. It talks about our amazing wealth that we have through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit about this wealth, that when you begin to understand what you have, who you are in Jesus Christ, you will live with a perpetual awe and wonder. In other words, what he accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, I mean, all the wealth of heaven. In fact, it even it talks, it starts off with the first verse. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 3 of chapter 1. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is that all about? Oh, that's, that's overwhelming. That's beyond your wildest dreams. No words can describe what God has for you and I through his son Jesus Christ. And it's more than we deserve, infinitely more than we deserve. And so when that begins to get a hold of you, you, you begin to realize that you have uh, everything your heart needs and longs for can be found in Jesus. Now, working that out into every aspect of our life. So that's the first three chapters. Then we move into chapters four, five, and then six. And so we go from our wealth to our walk and in our walk, we began chapter 4 talking about the body of Christ, the church, our involvement there. And then we went from there to putting off the old self, putting on the new self, looking at some specific issues of how to do that. Talked about in chapter 5, being imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, as we worked through chapter 5, talked about the spirit-filled life, which is a wonderful life, and really learning how to implement the gospel into every part of our lives and then we talked about how we apply the gospel to our marriages, our roles as husbands and wives. And then last week, we talked about children, parenting, and then work. So here's the crazy thing. Why does he end? How do you think he ends? He goes from wealth to walk, walk this out in your life, from beliefs. If you believe this, this is how it's going to change your behavior so how does, he, how does he end this book? What would be the best way to end this book? He ends by what? Anybody? Need a hint? I already talked about it. It's in the notes. War. War. You thought you could live this fullness of life without a fight? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? It is a fight. Belief behavior, you're going to have to battle like crazy to work that belief down into your behavior in every aspect of your life. That's why he ends this book by talking about the warfare. So he, he warns us about this war that we're up against, but then he also instructs us on how we can win this war. But you're probably saying, wait, wait, time out, Pastor Ray. Isn't the theme verse of Desert Breeze, John 10, 10, the thief, no, the, the second part, not the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. That's not a, not a good theme, but that's the first part of the verse. The second part is Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. Yeah, 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 but don't forget the first part. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
It's a battle. And we're going to look right into this battle here today. In fact, listen, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And you are no match for him. But he, Satan, is no match for God. We're going to read the words here in a minute. He's going to say, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Yeah! When you understand what God has in store for you, you can face anything. But walking that out into every area of our life, that's where the battle comes. And so that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Uh, We're going to pray, and we're going to dive into our text. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's go before the throne of grace once again. God, we are delighted to be here today. And in fact, I'm going to pray the prayer that we prayed earlier in the study of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. I think it's appropriate for this morning. So God, this morning, as we come before you, as we pray this prayer, Ephesians 1, 17 through 21, that you, God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, our glorious Father, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and deeper intimacy with you, Father, that we would know you more intimately, that you would take hold of our lives, every aspect of our lives, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, this confident, joyful expectation, and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us, and what is the immeasurable, let us know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when when you raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. In this text, we're going to answer three questions Who are we fighting? What are his schemes? And then how do we fight? How do we fight? How do we win this fight? So first of all, let's read, starting in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So as he's wrapping up the letter, he says, okay, this is what you need to know. Wealth, walk, war. A war unlike you've ever seen before. And he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So the first question Who are we fighting? Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. So he goes through this list. Uh, Before we put the answers to this, this next point, I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around. This is a question I ask quite regularly around here. And... uh, It's a question of who are your three enemies? The Bible describes three enemies that we face as believers. And you need to know these enemies. You need to know what you're up against. Uh, 
and discuss it with the folks sitting around you real quick. What are our, what are our three enemies? If you need help with that, Ephesians, we studied this a number of weeks ago, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 spells it out very clearly. Anybody want to yell out the enemies to me? Who are, the flesh, the flesh, the self, sinful nature, that's one. What else? The world, yeah. Society, and then what's the third one? If you could kick in the seat of the pants, the one that gives you the most problems, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a week, and that would be you, that would be that sinful nature. But then we've got also Satan, so that's your answers on your notes, we have three enemies, society, Satan, sinful self, or sinful nature. Society, Satan, sinful nature, sinful self. Now let me give you, and, and Ephesians, we're going to be reading those verses in a little bit. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes that very clear. Now next couple fill in the blanks on your notes. How many, when you were saying that, you were saying three enemies, let's see, you are my enemy, you pointed to the person sitting next to you. You were one. Anybody do that? Okay, no? Okay. Uh, the tendency is to think that, that uh, my enemies are, it's the spouse, God, you gave me. He or she is my enemy, or your bratty teenagers, or maybe it's that boss you have to work, or, you know, work with, or it could be any number of things. But the Bible actually says, no, no, yeah, they could be an enemy, but it goes much deeper. In fact, behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil, and that's what he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So he's saying behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil, he's not denying that there is an evil in society or in our sinful nature, but he says there's something agitating it, it is something that is not flesh and blood, it's Satan. That's what he's saying, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So don't just look at the physical, thinking you can answer your, your problems just by looking at the physical. There's something much deeper there's a spiritual dimension that your eyes can't see. You have an enemy that you cannot see. He's the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And in the midst of that, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So you see that conflict even in that verse, John 10.10. 10. So what's interesting about our, our society, modern, our modern Western world believes everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation. So we tend to believe that crime and violence and greed and racism and war and cruelty all have a natural cause. With the recent uh, mass murders that we've had here in our country, immediately you see the media and a lot of the experts try to diagnose it and say, well, you know, what's going on psychologically and what's going on sociologically? And, and so what we typically do in our society is that we try to put the blame on maybe chromosomes, it's DNA, they've got something wrong with them in their body, or we, we blame it on their conditioning, their parents put their DARPAs on too tight, or, you know, or the environment that they were raised in, or, or we say it's their circumstances. They lost their job, they had hit the end of their rope, they didn't know what to do, and yet the Bible says those things can certainly influence you, but they don't control, and there's this, there's something behind the scenes aggravating all of that. And by the way, let me ask you this. Our society tends to focus on those things, chromosomes, circumstances, condi uh, conditions, conditioning in some form or fashion. And, and then they think, well, maybe just through education, counseling, politics, we'll get the problem solved. Are we getting the problem solved? No, we are a long ways from getting the problem solved because we're not going deep enough. The Bible says it's much deeper. The Bible says that the, the issues are our society this God-ignoring air we breathe in our society pushes us away from God. 
I mean, even during the Olympics, when they would interview some of these uh, Olympians who'd done quite well that were Christians, and they talked about trying to give glory to God, it was interesting the, how, how much they were opposed by the enemy, and they would even cut and edit those segments out of their, their testimonies, so to speak. And, and People don't like that. Our society doesn't like that. They don't want to hear that. So our society is very, very anti-God. It's, it's the values of our culture that are contrary to, to the ways of God, but then add to that our own sinful nature. nature. There's, we were all born with this inclination within ourselves to, to, to run away from God, to do our own thing, to be, to be our own God. We want to be our own God. We want to take his place. And then we have an adversary that just stirs all of that up. Let me level with you here. You need to know this. You will never, never be able to defeat darkness in your life or in the life of your family, and nor will we be able to defeat darkness in this community or in this world if we don't get down to the deeper issues and understand that the solutions are only, only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, only found in Him. Until you realize this, you'll not understand evil's depth, pervasiveness, or stubbornness. I, a number of years ago, as I was doing a study on spiritual warfare, I started asking a lot of different questions, and I began to look to the Scripture to see if there was answers to those questions. And for instance, I asked this question, why is there so much evil on this planet? And so here's the verses that I was talking about, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. I'll just read 1 and 2. But it says, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, so it's talking about that sinful nature, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, there's this society, and, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, there's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The Bible makes it pretty clear. There's only two teams. You're either on God's team through Jesus Christ, or you're on the opposing team. By default, you choose to come on to God's team because he's done a work in your life. He's made you alive spiritually, but you're on one of two teams. So why is, why is there so much evil on this planet Earth? What well, says right there, Satan, self, sinful self, and then our society. How about this question? Why are my friends so indifferent when I share the gospel with them? 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You talk to them about how excited you are with Jesus and they're just kind of yawning in your face and like, what's this all about? They're blind. Satan has blinded their minds to see the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, unlike you see. How about this question? My relationship with God used to be real, rich, and redeeming, but why has it lately become routine, religious, and robotic? 2 Corinthians eleven three. but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here's another question. Why are there so many religions and so many confusing beliefs? Have you ever wondered that? Wow, there's like thousands of religions, major beliefs. What is that all about? Check this out, 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I think that there are, there are some very popular belief systems and religions in our, 
American society today. And these people are really great people. They're very moral people, but it's from the pit of hell to deceive and lead people astray. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, how he comes to us as an angel of light and leads us astray. He's a father of lies. Here's another question. If you're saying, Pastor Wade, that many of these religions and confusing beliefs are false, then how do you account for the miracles and the powerful experiences people claim to have? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 answers that. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. I had a, a friend of mine that defected from Christianity and became a Hare Krishna, and he actually said what validated it for him is that he had never experienced more peace in his life. So that tells me that you're on the right path, you have peace. Well, of course, the enemy will give you peace. He'll give you whatever your little heart desires to get you to lead you astray. He will meet your felt needs. And so, how about this one? When I blow it, I know God forgives me, but why do I struggle with so much condemnation, guilt, and shame? Revelations 12:11 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brothers. The word devil literally means accuser. Why is it that when I set out to minister, share my faith, or help someone get closer to God, I get distracted, detoured, or detained in some strange way? Why does it seem so difficult to attend church regularly, study the Bible consistently, and pray faithfully? 1 Thessalonians 2.18, listen to what Paul says. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Isn't that interesting? Why do I struggle trying to hear and heed God's word? I read the Bible. It doesn't seem to be making any sense. The things that I do kind of hear from it later on in the day, I forget about it. Here's a good answer for that, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So you can see underneath what's going on in our lives. We have an adversary I mean, I've done, it's really amazing. I did a funeral yesterday. It was, it was a wonderful funeral because the person was a believer and most of the people that were there were believers, but I did a funeral not too long ago. And typically, it's a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And as soon as I begin to proclaim the name of Jesus, the air was sucked right out of the room. It was almost like a demonic presence I got the most hateful letter I've ever received from anybody at the end of that uh, funeral because they did not want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I put this on on the notes. In fact, this is, uh, always keep this in mind, but it's uh, first chapter of of Corinthians, chapter, uh, first Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, it tells us that the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you should expect that anytime you proclaim the gospel, you're going to have either a riot or revival because you're coming up against the forces of evil. I've actually experienced it here in this room. On a Sunday morning, when I deal with a topic like this, I mean, there's been a lot of prayers 
set forth because we're in dealing with this topic. This is a tough topic, and I usually take some major hits as I'm dealing with this. There's hardly a time when I'm dealing with the demonic that I don't get knocked sideways spiritually. And it's, it's just interesting how those things begin to take place. And I've seen that, I've seen a major distinction from one service to the next, where one service there's just an unbelievable openness and a receptivity, and then the next service it's almost shut down, like we're fighting through something. Very spiritual, very oppressive. It's real. There's a real demonic force that begins to take place in our lives. And it can, it can be in our that can create problems within our marriage relationship, within our own lives, emotionally. There can be a root, an emotional root. I've seen a, a, a physical root when people are struggling physically with ailments. There can be a, a demonic root to that. I've seen people financially, I mean, about the time they want to start giving faithfully to God their tithes, alms, and offerings, all hell break loose in their finances. That's no accident. That's no accident. The enemy is doing everything he can to prevent you from progressing in your understanding of who God is and proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. And so there's all these things that can begin to take place around us and in our lives. When I started, uh, when my wife and I, and there was a group of us that started Desert Breeze some 20 years ago in our home, I experienced depression for six months, and I'm not typically a depressed person, and I can have a couple days, bad days. If it rains too many days here in Phoenix, I get depressed. And uh, don't worry, I didn't get depressed this last week. I love the rain because we haven't had it for a while. But I mean, it's just like, uh, but, but it was something beyond just the, the circumstances or the things that were happening. I could not fight through it. And finally, when I began to recognize, hey, this is beyond me, I began to ask people to pray for me. It was like light that dispels darkness. It's like turning on a light switch. There were things that began to kind of lift off of me that I thought, wow, I feel much more freer. I, I think, thanks for your prayers. I don't know what the heck that was, but man, it made me want to not even do this church because I know that the enemy knew that through church planning is one of the ways that you make a phenomenal impact. I mean, if you look back in the 20 years of the history of Desert Breeze, oh my goodness, the presence and the power of the God, the, the people's lives that have been impacted as a result of the gospel being proclaimed here in our small groups, here on weekend services, through all the various ministries, he knew he's going to do whatever he can to prevent us from living our life to the fullest for the Lord Jesus Christ. If he can't take you to hell, he will bring as much hell into your life that he can to make you miserable, not only to make you miserable, but to minimize your impact for the kingdom of God. He will so distract you that you can't do and function in the life that Christ has given you for his glory so behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood evil is something that is not flesh and blood. I like, uh, I like what was sent to me. I send out on Facebook and then also on Twitter. I'll kind of give my notes out, and there was somebody in our church. It was Carol Velasquez. She was in the first service. She found out that we were preaching on spiritual warfare, and this is what she, she uh, kind of quoted to me or sent to me. Uh, on Facebook, she said, you know, every time you preach on a certain subject, we experience it in our lives. Could you please preach on someone winning the lottery? <laughs> so I, 
I mean, there's something about that. She understands the dynamics of spiritual warfare and that when we deal with, I mean, when my wife and I are teaching a, and by the way, if, if, you're, if you plan on signing up for Game of Life, I teach Game of Life, and I'll guarantee you, and I love teaching the class, that will fortify your faith unlike uh, anything maybe you've taken in a while. And the enemy's not gonna like that. He's gonna beat the living daylights out of you to keep you from taking that class and to being a part of that, to any class for that matter in this church. Anything that will help to fortify your faith, develop your character, get stronger in the Lord, and to begin to see more clearly the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He's going to do it. He's going to prevent you from doing that. And, uh, but as you begin to take those steps, and you begin to say, when, when you sign up for any of our marriage classes, guess what's going to happen? He's going to work you over in your marriage. Now, some might say, well, that's just psychosomatic because they always had those problems. They were just stuffed down, and now that they, you start talking about these things, of course, these things are going to come to the surface. Yeah, that could be certainly part of that, but don't underestimate the underlying, as he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's something going on. You need to be aware of it. And if you don't, and if you're not aware of it, it's going to create problems. So let's do this before we go to the next point. Answer, what is the opposite of these words? I'll give you a couple words and you just tell me, yell out to me the opposite of, of these words. What's the opposite of hot? Okay, good. How about light? God. Oh, got some of you. Most of you are kind of like, oh. Here's your next fill in the blank. Satan is not the opposite and equal of God, but a fallen angel. Limited to one place at a time, but has a demonic presence of intelligence network, an intelligence network communicating and working with him. So praise God, you are no match for Satan, but Satan is no match for God, and that's why he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Let me walk you through some scriptures. They're there. You can study them further on your own. Luke 10, 17 through 20, it's really quite interesting. Jesus sends out his disciples uh, to minister, to proclaim the gospel. They come back, they're all, they're tickled to death, they're excited, they're saying, we cast out demons. Demons, you know, fled when we prayed for folks. And by the way, demons can, um, people can be demon-possessed. That's, I've, I've prayed with a number of people that were demon-possessed, I've cast out demons. And nothing to worry about unless you're not walking with God and then you need to worry, okay? You don't, you don't square off with demons apart from the power and the presence of all of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so they were quite tickled because they were seeing some people's lives being set free. And then in that, Jesus said, Luke 10, 17 through 20, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Huh? What was he saying? He was saying, I was in heaven when Satan fell. You're dealing with Satan and his cohorts, these demons. I saw him in his pride get booted from heaven and by the way, he, he goes on and Jesus says, don't, don't glory, don't uh, rejoice in the fact that demons hear you, rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Don't make much about your ministry, make much about the fact that you know me and you have me in your life because that's the power that will get you through whatever you're facing. If you want to read more about Satan's fall, Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, it's on your notes, and then Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 give you more insight, you can read that. Revelations 12, 4 tells us that Satan led one-third of the angels in heaven in rebellion against God. So that tells us, well, what does that tell you about Satan? If he can, 
There's billions of angels, and if he can take a third of the host of angels and get them to follow him, he's pretty influential. He's got a lot of power. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that eternal fire, hell, was prepared for the devil and his angels. But here's an interesting, uh, I was with some guys uh, going through, it's a Tuesday morning Bible study. They were, uh, it's been a few months now, probably about six or eight months. We were going through the book of Daniel. We came upon this text. It had been a while since I read it, and it kind of popped out to me. And it's Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. Daniel is praying. So it kind of gives us a, a look behind the scenes. If you want to know if your, your, your prayers are powerful or what's happening sometimes or why it seems to take a while before God answers those prayers, Daniel helps us to see that. But Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, Daniel's prayer is heard in heaven and an angel is dispatched with a special message for Daniel. But in route, the angel encounters opposing forces and is delayed for 21 days until Michael, bigger, tougher angel, Michael the archangel, is dispatched to the other angel to fight, and it says there in that text, to fight the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So this demonic force that's over a region. And, uh, and so he's able to fight this, this demon off so that he can deliver his message to Daniel. Isn't that interesting? You're praying, you're pleading with God, and then little do you know, there's major warfare. Your intercessory prayer does make a difference in the lives of people that are around you. There's major spiritual warfare going on. So, who are we fighting? We have three enemies, society, Satan, sinful self, behind the scenes, aggravating the flesh and blood. Evil is something that is not flesh and blood. Satan and Satan is not the opposite equal of God, but a fallen angel limited one place at a time, but has a demonic presence. We need to always keep that in mind. So what are his schemes? Let's take a look at this. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes here in the Greek means methodia. The word methods, we get the word methods. So strategies, cunning arts, deceit, craft, trickery. So he's out to deceive you. He's going to fool you. He deceives you into thinking that this is true when in reality it isn't, whatever it might be, away from God. 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, we are not unaware of his schemes. So you need to be aware of his schemes. Um, the word devil, Greek, diabolos, diabolical, we get our word from that, means prone to slander, slanderous, accusing, falsely. So, so in a minute, we're, we're going to talk about this, but he, he tempts us, deceives us. You've heard me use this many times before. People defect from the faith for two reasons. I believe that there's a, a spiritual dynamic to their defecting from the faith that's something very demonic. We defect because we are deceived by the pleasures of life, but we are disillusioned by the pressures of life. The slanderer gets a hold of our life. So he's got his methods, his strategies of trickery and deceit, but also he just hammers the living daylights out of us through slander and accusing us falsely. So there's two, two extreme views of Satan that we must avoid, but there's also uh, two schemes we need to be aware of, the two extremes that we must avoid. C.S. Lewis says two errors... We make about devils, one, disbelieve 
in their existence. Number two, believe and feel excessive interest in them. Both please them. So the first one is don't underrate Satan's power. So we get this from the word. These are both in, uh, both points that I'm going to make here is the extremes to avoid are inferred in the text. Verse 12, it says wrestle. The word is struggle. Greek means this, wrestling, a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. In other words, this is the most intense life or death struggle. I, uh, the only thing that came to mind as I was thinking about that was there's a video clip I'm going to show you. It's from the movie Air Force One. Harrison Ford is the president. Uh, terrorists have boarded the Air Force One, and it's that scene where he's struggling. This, that, this is what he's defining. So we wrestle not. So there's this struggle, life or death struggle. Watch this video. It kind of helps us to, to get what that means. that. <laughs> so that struggle that you see Harrison Ford, you know, with this guy, this terrorist, that's what he's talking about. We wrestle not. And I know you've had that before. I know you've had that late into the evening and into the night, middle of the night, waking up in the morning, just struggling over issues, maybe finances or whatever, and the enemy's trying to hold you down, saying, you're not going to get through this. There's no way. Why are you even calling out to God? He doesn't hear you and you're fighting, and you're struggling, and finally, there's something that rises up within you, and you say, get off my plane. <laughs> I mean, you gotta do that. You gotta do, get out of my life. Get away from me. Get out of my home. 
Jesus has set me free. I have freedom through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you have to be that aggressive. You can't just sit down, lay down, and take it. At some point in your life, you've got to realize there's a, there's a spiritual element. He's working. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So you say, get out of my life. Get off my plane. There's that attitude. There's something that rises up within you. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the enemy. So we've, we've got all that we need in Jesus Christ. We don't have to take it. So, so it's important for us to kind of have that mindset. Verse 12, he says, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. He's almost kind of laying out this this structure, this military structure, he's showing how organized, purposeful, powerful they are. It was interesting, I was uh, doing some study on this a little bit further. I heard R.C. Sproul, theologian, and he was talking about uh, this idea of this depiction of a red caricature with horns, pointed tail, pitchfork, was developed in the Middle Ages by Christians who believed in a real devil and knew his greatest problem, the devil's problem was pride, it's what got him kicked out of heaven, and God's power was much greater, so therefore they wanted to belittle him, so they depicted him, they, they developed this caricature of him to do that. But what's interesting about our society today is that people today use this caricature of him to, be, uh, to belittle the belief that there really is a Satan. Oh, it's just a cartoon character. But when that was uh, originally uh, established, it was meant to belittle him. Satan, you, don't, you can't have any control in my life. So, so the first point here as it relates to the extremes to avoid, don't underrate Satan's power. He can get a hold of our life. But don't overrate Satan's power. That's why he says be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. And so here's, here's what you need to, to understand is that if you blame everything on Satan, he's got you. If you don't blame anything on Satan, he's got you. He's a part, and we need to be a bit more multidimensional in our understanding. For instance, depression. Uh, depression can have roots uh, that are psychological, the thoughts we think, the things that are most important to us being taken away from us. I mean, they can have psychological, they can have moral roots. Depression can, can come as, a, as, a, uh, as sin in our life, unrepented of. We're struggling with things in our life. Uh, depression can come uh, physiologically from brain chemistry. Uh, if you've gone through abuse or if you've abused your body through alcohol or drug use, it can deplete your serotonin levels and can create a, a depression. But also, you can have a spiritual oppression, a depression that comes as a result of, uh, that, that's very demonic. So this is what I love about the Scriptures is that the Scripture is very multifaceted. It's not reductionistic, but it says, hey, make sure you're covering the basis, the full gamut of issues that can happen in your life. And be aware that, yeah, God, uh, the, the enemy can be agitating these other issues in your life. Maybe your lack of sleep and, and not eating appropriately and the, the job issues, but don't, don't just say, hey, that, that's all they are, because the enemy can have a hold in there. You could be giving the enemy a foothold in that. And so you need to pray against that. That's why it says in, in 1 Peter uh, 5.8, be self-controlled and alert your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
But then it goes on in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him and he will flee from you. So, so doubt your own strength, but never doubt God's strength. And, and understand that, that he's working and he's agitating in our lives. I love what 1 Peter 5, 8 from the message says, keep a cool head, stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and would like nothing better than to catch you napping, but keep your guard up. I like the way he puts that there. So let's look at the two schemes. This is important for us, and we're gonna, probably not going to get through all of it today, and that's why we're going to talk about it next week. But let me uh, show you a little bit of what he's up to with his schemes. So don't go to one extreme or the other, these extreme views of him. Don't overrate or underrate his power, but you need to know his schemes. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us that he is an angel of light. So he comes as a, maybe as a brother or as a sister or as a mom or a dad or as a coach or somebody that you would highly respect, maybe a very moral person. They could come, he could come in that form. Uh, John 8, says that he is the father of lies. Now, even as Christians, we tend to do this. We think that, de- that demons aren't involved unless it's like the exorcist, their head is spinning and they're vomiting green stuff. You know, that it's real, if it's not real dramatic, then Satan couldn't be involved. But this is what, uh, as one theologian said, he doesn't leave fang marks on the skin, but lies in the heart. Don't look for him in the dramatic. Listen to me. It's subtle. It's every day. It's the lies that you believe that keep you trapped, that foul up your life, that keep you from experiencing the fullness of life that God has for you. Now, we know that Satan fell in heaven because of pride. Pride is self-absorption, self-centeredness manifested in two ways. There's two lies. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Through pride, the devil became the devil. Pride leaves, uh, leads to every vice. So every, every problem that we have is rooted in pride. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Here's the two lies. Superiority, this is how pride looks in our lives. Superiority in an inflated view of self. Temptation, so he uses temptation there to pull us away from God. And then inferiority is a deflated view of self. It's also pride, and he does this through accusation. So if you're going to remember anything, remember temptation, accusation, temptation, accusation. That's how he's going to come after you. He's working. He's even working right now in your life in here. You've given him, if you've given him a foothold, you've got patterns of thought in your life. So he's going to do that through temptation, accusation, superiority, inferiority. Both of those are a preoccupation with self. They're self-absorption, self-centeredness. Through this superiority attitude and inflated view of self, he wants to get you out of touch with your dire condition apart from Christ. He wants to get you out of touch with your own sinfulness. Hey, you're a good person. Come on. Spread your wings a little bit. You don't need to go to church. You can yeah, do your own thing. He'll get you preoccupied with, with really good things and actually make good things into ultimate things into your life. As I said, the people defect from the faith because they are deceived by the pleasures of life. And this is what he wants you to believe. This is what he's going to do. He's going to try to deceive you into thinking that there's something in creation that will satisfy your deepest needs more than the creator. It can be money. It can be a relationship. It can be any number of things in your life, any, any acquisitions, any accomplishments, any achievements, to where you begin to make those things more important than God. He's got you 
If that's the case, if you're chasing after those things more than you would pursue him, he's deceiving you. Because the Bible makes it clear there's only one that can satisfy our deepest longings and needs. And when he blesses us, that the word blessing in Scripture means total fulfillment, complete well-being found in a personal, intimate relationship with God. And so that's that inflated view of self-temptation, but then the inferiority is a deflated view of self-accusation. So in temptation, he tries to pull us away, but in accusation, he tries to push us away from God. We become disillusioned by the pressures of life. What he wants us to do is to be out, for us to be out of touch with the magnitude of God's provision, God's love for us. Now, what's interesting is that our society tries to fix an inferiority complex with superiority complex, is that we, we try to help and anytime, helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them, keeps them stuck. That's our society. That's the, the society. Oh, you're a great person. Yeah, you can do it. You can set your mind to it. You can be whatever you want to be. Wait, 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 wait. Listen, you're desperate without God. Everything that you have comes to you by God. You need to understand that and live in the reality of that. But see, the enemy will try to hide you either from your own sinfulness or from God's love. He tries to keep you from that humble confidence that you desperately need to be able to navigate through the issues of life. Let me uh, go through some, some questions or what it might look like in this uh, area of temptation and accusation. This is from Thomas Brooks, 17th century Puritan. You can download this. Just do a Google search. It's his book online, and uh, it's uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He goes into a lot of detail. You might want to get more of an up-to-date version. Some of the older versions are a bit hard to, to track with, but this is what he says. This is how Satan tempts us. He shows you the bait but hides the hook, emphasizes short-term pleasure over the long-term consequences. Another thing he does is he's getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. Here's how he does it. I'm not really greedy. I'm just as smart with money. Or I'm not a workaholic. I just have a strong work ethic. Or I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. Or I'm not critical or bitter. I'm just discerning. Another thing he does is by showing you the sins of Christian leaders. Well, see, nobody's perfect. That justifies me doing what I can do, whatever I want to do. See, they couldn't make it. If they can't make it, I can't make it. And they're spiritual. Here's another way it gets us, by overstressing the mercy of God. It's God's job to forgive. It's my job to sin. Woohoo! How about this one? By making them bitter over suffering. I deserve this. This is why many very prominent, powerful men fall because of the struggles that they're having and then they feel like they're entitled and they kind of like, hey, I deserve this. I deserve to kind of do this or experience this in my life. So they take the bait. Here's another one. Showing Christians how many non-Christians are living great lives. That's why Psalm 37 and 73 was written. How about this one? Justifying one part of your life with another. I may be bad here. I'm really bad here, but I'm really good over here. It's what mafia hit men say. I'm good to my mother, though I kill people, but I'm good to my mother. See, we do that. We get caught in his trap. That's how he tempts us. That's just a few. He goes through even more, more of these, but uh, Thomas Brooks, you want to be able to identify what are the messages, what are the lies floating around in your head, and then how does, he, how does Satan accuse us? 
He does this, causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Dwelling on past sins that, that the damage can't be remedied or undone. So he's using guilt and shame. Suffering is punishment from God. That's what he says to us. Or if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. I must not be a Christian. Here's what he held me captive for for many years is that I confused the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the condemnation of the enemy. Confused those two. The conviction of the Holy Spirit certainly is troubling because we recognize our sinfulness, but if you really understand that, it's a doorway to run into the arms of the one who loves us and forgives us and redeems us. But anytime you find yourself, because of your sin, running from God, you're playing into his accusations. He's condemning you. God does not condemn us. That alone would bring an unbelievable freedom to our lives. So, almost finished. Here we go. Here's the next point in your notes. Satan goes to great lengths, and this is what he's trying to do, to distort our view of God because one glimpse of his majesty and you are forever ruined for anything else. You see, there's no temptation that can allure you if you are captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. There's no trial that will overwhelm you if you see his greatness and how wonderful he is. See, in those moments when we're being allured by temptation or being overcome by trials, it's because we don't see him very clearly. That's why I read these earlier. For, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, he doesn't want you to have a passion for Jesus because if you have a passion for Jesus, you will be able to overcome anything and everything. So he's gonna pour water on that passion. He's gonna try to quench your love that you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to do everything you can to stir up your appetite for him so that you can see him more clearly. Nothing, there's absolutely nothing more miserable than the endless unsmiling concentration on self, but it's the beauty See, that's pride, either in superiority or inferiority, but it's the beauty of what Christ did for us that sets us free from self-absorption. The cure to self-centeredness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your heart is full of Christ's glory. So how do we fight? Take up the whole armor of God. Two points is how we end. Know the particular devices or the lies Satan uses on you. You need to be aware. What is it? Temptation, accusation. My wife said that he tends to go back and forth with her between temptation and accusation. Let me tell you a story. If you take the game of life, you'll hear this story in game of life. It's one I told not too long ago in here, but it's important. Um, There was a woman that was diagnosed with cancer. The the doctor didn't give give her any hope. Said, there's nothing we can do. You're just gonna die and uh, by the way, let me just say this about, uh, there's a guy here in our church, Zach Davis, just got the report this last week that he's cancer-free. By God's grace, isn't that cool? Praise God for his grace. He was sitting right up here this morning, so God, God heals. He's still in the business of healing and touching our lives and ministering to us. But this gal got the report, she's got cancer, she's going to die, and uh, she obviously had a great deal of anxiety and didn't know what to do just hit her all of a sudden, kind of going through the grief process, uh, experienced some major anger towards God, but then said, ah, oh, that's not right, so she turned the anger inward. Anger became depression when you turn it inward like that, and the depression led to her attempting to commit suicide. 
And so she attempted suicide, was unsuccessful, fortunately, because she found out that it was a misdiagnosis. That's what the enemy does to you and I every, every day. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. And he will hold you hostage to temptation and accusation. You need to be aware of the lies that he's speaking to you. And that's why we've spent a couple weeks on this. We'll talk more about it next week. Because I'm telling you this. If you abide in his word, if you continue in his word, it says in John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said this to those who had committed their life to him. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He wants to bring freedom to your lives. You don't need to be held hostage to the lies of the enemy anymore. But you've got to identify, that's a lie. This is what the Bible says. That's a lie. This is what the Bible said. It is written. You've got to come at him. We're going to talk about that and how to wield the sword next week. And so, the gospel is the armor of God. You need to know the gospel. I'm going to invite the team up. They're going to do a song to help us get this deep within our hearts. a powerful song. But the gospel is basically that you are saved not by your works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand the difference because if you're doing the works righteousness gig, it's going to lead to superiority or inferiority because when you're hitting the marks, you're going to feel good about yourself, look down on others, and you're going to be very defensive when people try to point things out in your life. Or if you're not hitting the marks, you're going to feel, uh, have a lot of doubt. You're going to be overcome with that uh, inferiority because, it's, because your life is based on works righteousness rather than faith righteousness. But this is how the gospel helps us to deal with temptation and accusation, gives us a humble confidence so that we have this delight in the beauty of Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. But in temptation, because I was so sinful, he had to die. It makes me want my Savior more than my sin. My fascination with sin is overcome by a greater fascination with my Savior. That's how we deal with temptation. How do we deal with accusation? Because God loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. This overcomes my accusation because it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done in your life, his grace is sufficient. You and I are accepted and loved by the only one in the universe that matters. That's what this song is talking about. Listen to what it says. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this message today. God, I know that your light this morning, through the teaching of your word and the proclamation of the gospel is dispelling the darkness in our life. May that happen even more so through this song. May we see your open arms of love and acceptance. May we run into your arms as you bring freedom to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
I am. 
That's good stuff, isn't it? Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his grace. Would you stand with me? As you stand, let me share with you something. John Newton, who wrote the Amazing Grace song, was a pastor, and he had someone uh, write to him and said, I'm depressed. He was struggling with depression. He says, I'm such a bad sinner, God can never love me. And John Newton wrote him back and said, you're accurate with the first part of that. You are a bad sinner. Nice thing for a pastor to say. And he says, you are a bad sinner, but you're inaccurate with the second part. You need to repent of your low view of God that no matter how deep and dark your sin is, whatever your problems is, His amazing grace is more than enough. His grace is sufficient for every one of our needs. Praise God for that. So this morning, Desert Breeze, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. God bless you.